Hello and welcome to The Cupid Couch, the podcast about love, sex and relationships, both present and past. My name is Genevieve Gaunt, the creator and host, and you can find visual content to go along with the show on the Instagram at The Cupid Couch. And if you're new, I'd go back and start with episode one. Welcome. This episode is about treachery in the realm of love and dating, from the 21st century to Tudor Tinder. It explores how the romantic arena is a masquerade, and how whether in the age of social media or in the age of oil paintings, people have always worn masks to conceal who they really are. This episode will show the shockwaves of devastation that ripple out when that mask slips, whether in the 21st century or in the 16th, from catfishing to codpieces. The main story in this episode belongs to Hobby Stewart, a singer-songwriter in his late 20s whose life took a very dark turn after a one-night stand. Without giving too much away, when Hobby told me what happened, I thought about the expression we often use, that there are two sides to every story. His tale made me think more of how there are often two sides to every person, especially now with social media and dating apps. We create profiles of ourselves, curated works of fiction, presenting what we want the world to see. When I was interviewing people about love and dating, I asked my friend Maracchio what he thought about dating apps, and he made an interesting point about the word profile. Here's Maracchio. It's called profile for a reason. Profile is a side of when, when people ask you to stand in profile, you just one side of yourself. There's all this going on, which they're not seeing. So that's what people need to realise. It's a side of a person. As he said, a profile is a side. It's 2D. As is a dating app profile picture, you can't see the whole. And this podcast is all about exploring the past to try and make sense of the present. In talking to people and doing research, I've realised that both everything has changed and nothing has changed. You might query this and say, how could dating apps and social media draw parallels in history? Surely the internet is unprecedented. Well, it's actually easier than you might think. Before Hobby tells us his story, I want to talk about how Henry VIII was catfished. Catfishing is when a person pretends to be someone else online to lure the other party into a relationship. The term was coined by the 2010 documentary Catfish. The term might be new, but the deception is as old as time. In the ancient Greek myths, Zeus is notorious for seducing, raping and impregnating women in false catfishing-esque forms. He metamorphosed into a bull to rape Europa, into a swan to rape Leda, and strangely, impregnated Danae in the form of a rain of golden coins. And in 1539, Henry VIII was to fall prey to a similar scheme. He was on a kind of dating app of his own, what I like to call Tudor Tinder. And even more like dating app profile pics, the Tudors had something called miniatures, little portraits in watercolour often bestowed at court or used in royal marriage negotiations. Miniatures are even referenced in Shakespeare's Hamlet. Hamlet talks about the king, his uncle's, quote, picture in little. One of these miniatures was used in the negotiation for Henry VIII to marry Anne of Cleves. 
He had three disastrous marriages behind him and no male heir. To find a wife, Henry had been on Tudor Tinder, swiping left and right on the portraits of aristocratic women in Europe. A French noblewoman called Mary of Guise had rejected Henry, quite rightly fearing her head, and then he had rejected another, a woman called Christina, Duchess of Milan. Why? On the grounds that Christina was too slender. What has changed? Who hasn't looked at a dating app profile picture and rejected someone on a physical basis, being too tall, too short, too wide, too thin, too whatever? Henry is reported to have actually said, I am big in person and have need of a big wife. Fair play, mate. The man who played Cupid for Henry was his sidekick, his chief minister and a lawyer by training, Thomas Cromwell. Cromwell had Hans Holbein sent to the Duchy of Cleves in Protestant Germany to paint Anne of Cleves and bring back her likeness for Henry to see. When the miniature arrived back in England, Henry liked what he saw and decided to marry her. And yet, at the English court, as anticipation grew for Anne to come over to London, a nasty little rhyme began to be whispered up and down the halls. If that be your picture, then shall we soon see how you and your picture agree. Isn't that everyone's internal mantra before going on a date? After seeing someone on a dating app? If that be your picture, then shall we soon see how you and your picture agree? Well, when Anne arrived at court to wed Henry, apparently she looked nothing like her portrait. Henry spat, Whom shall men trust? I promise you I see no such thing as hath been shown me of her by pictures. Even rather comically, Henry kept repeating, I like her not, I like her not. Anne, however, rather touchingly, was so naive about sex that she believed she could get pregnant from the king kissing her goodnight. The far more worldly Henry, by contrast, was so offended by her looks that he couldn't consummate the marriage. It's recorded he complained of her saggy breasts and other tokens that implied she wasn't a virgin, and furthermore what he called, quote, very evil smells about her. By this point in time, Henry was an obscenely fat 48-year-old man to Anne's 24, and he himself stank. He had ulcerous sores on his legs from riding accidents that never healed and wept. So Henry had the marriage annulled, and Anne was declared king's sister and settled in England. But Henry was so outraged by the whole business and the false advertising perpetuated by the crafty Thomas Cromwell that, yes, Cromwell was executed for it. The fear of deception and false advertising in the romantic and marital arena must have been strong in Tudor England because Thomas More, Henry VIII's Chancellor, devout Catholic and author of Utopia in 1515, wrote that the way to avoid false advertising would be to see your betrothed fully naked before you are married. And kudos to Moore, he doesn't expect just the woman to disrobe, but the man too. Moore writes, Before marriage, some grave matron presents the bride, naked, whether she is a virgin or a widow, to the bridegroom. And after that, some grave man presents the bridegroom, naked, to the bride. He goes on to say that clothes are things under which may lie hid, what may be contagious as well as loathsome. Moore believed this utopian ritual of disrobing before marriage was a way of making provision against mischievous frauds. This brings me to my first story today. In 2017, I met Hobby Stewart on the set of a music video. 
and a couple of months later he met a girl, but as the story progressed, all was not what it seemed. Here's Hobby. Ah, uh, gee, let me take you back to 2017. I had a date with a girl who was actually a friend of a friend. She was a photographer and she had a cool Instagram, some really cool pieces of work. She's quite amazing at Photoshop and stuff. We met at South Bank. Yeah, she didn't quite look like how she did in her pictures, but, you know, whatever. It, was, it wasn't... I didn't have a very good time. She didn't really talk much. Maybe one of the most awkward people I've ever met. And I remember walking back to the station and being like, yeah, this is probably where it should end. But me being a fool, um, especially back then, I, I've decided to invite her home. You know, we slept together and then she left the next morning. Neither of us spoke after that. I didn't send her a message. She didn't send me a message. Six weeks later, I was in my mum's garden back in Brighton and I get a call from her. No, 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 I get a text. Please call me. And I was like, oh, shit. I knew it could be only one or two things. One, STI two breakers is can't be anything else like what would she be needing to speak to me about otherwise i knew i didn't have an sti so i already kind of knew what the conversation was going to be i call her up and she was like i'm pregnant and i uh, don't know what to do about it before i should let you know so i was like um shit well what are you thinking she was like well i don't know i was like well so i was sitting there in my living room and i thought to myself right I've got a choice here, like, what kind of man do I want to be? Because I really don't want to have a baby with this girl. But if she's saying she want to keep it, then fuck it. I've just got to back it. I'm not going to try and persuade her to do something that she doesn't want to do, something so serious and, you know. Um, so I was like, okay, well, if you want to keep it, then, you know, I will be a partner to you in bringing up the child and I'll, I'll do whatever I can to be best father that I can possibly be. She texts me a minute later, and I'm like, oh my God, no, no, no. This is freaking me out. No, 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 I'm, I can't do this. And you saying that has made me like realize how real this is and I'm not ready, blah, blah. I was like, okay, cool. So I was like, sweet man, it's all, <laughs> the gamble's paid off. <laughs> I was like, okay, all right, I've got away with this one. She was like, oh, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to book an abortion, whatever. I was like, fucking hell, I mean, that is actually really grim, but, you know. Fuck it, it is what it is. That's where, that's where it's going. So then I checked in with her the next day. She wasn't, you know, feeling too good, blah, blah, blah. You know, consoled her, whatever the hell I said, I can't remember now. Anyway, I wake up on Wednesday morning to a text from her that she had sent at five in the morning saying, Hobby, I'm so sorry, I can't go through with this. I'm keeping it. So I was like, shit, well, I guess that's that then. I'm going to be a dad. I woke up, had a bowl of Weetabix, when I sat at the park and was like, well, this is it. If this is happening, then I've just got to embrace it. And that was that. I went about my life like I was, you know, I, I, I got someone pregnant and I was dealing with the bloody consequences of it. And I was got myself excited about being a father. I mean, luckily, I like kids anyway. Always wanted to be a dad. I've always looked forward to being a dad. So, whatever. Is this, if this was how it was going to be, is how it's going to be. I told my dad. Didn't tell my mum at that point. 
I told my dad and I told a couple of people close to me that, you know, I've got this girl pregnant and she she wants to keep it. And it kind of went from there. We didn't have, there was, we weren't involved in any way romantically after that at all. It seemed like an agreement that I would be there for her as a friend and a father to her child. And that's that. Um, and the first scan rolls around. Annoyingly, around this point, I had an emergency operation, really, with something, a health problem, and uh, I couldn't make it. So then she, 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 she goes and, you know, the, the baby's healthy or whatever, and uh, she says, yeah, everything's all good. So i got something to tell you, though. I was like, what? And she was like, it's twins. I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> mad. And then, uh, how was that? <laughs> I was just having twins out of nowhere. So anyway, I had to get me nut around that. Because also, also twins were like, you know, it was kind of exciting. I'm a very optimistic person. For example, we were talking about names and some of the suggestions, suggestions she was throwing out were just terrible. I tried to, I, I, you know, I kept my call because I, I wanted the, the one of them to be called Leo. And uh, she was trying to give it a name like Thatcher. One of the suggestions was Mumble as the middle name. And I was like, what well, Mumble was in to speak quietly and unconfidently. And she was like, no, 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 I'm after the, the penguin in Happy Feet. I was like, you do realise that this person is going to grow up to be an adult and you're going to try and give it Mumble as a middle name. She was like, yeah, I think it's cute. I remember that day being like, oh my God, what have I done? I'm going to have to deal with this person for the rest of my life. <laughs> anyway, we were men and me. I, she just didn't, I didn't hear from her. And then I get a message from her saying that her brothers just found her dad dead. Obviously, I was pretty shocked and I felt really bad for her because she had told me the first time that we met that her mum had passed away when I was, when she was 11 years old. And uh, she was really close to her dad, so it's pretty heartbreaking. A few days later, she was, she, she, she said that she went back to her hometown, which is a couple of hours outside of London, to sort things out, whatever. And she actually had the scan um, when she was back at home and uh, told me that it was a boy and a girl, which was kind of buzzing because that was what I was hoping for. It was getting nearer to the point where, you know, the babies were due. And uh, she had a big old bump by this point. So, you know, I, I uploaded a picture of the scan that she had sent me from the, the 20, 20 week or 21 week scan. I'd had several scans uh, that she'd sent me from the 12 weeks to 21 weeks. But anyway, I uploaded one of the scans on Instagram, announced I was going to be a dad and uh, did a little video talking about it too. Yeah, the response I got was obviously kind of mad. I mean, I think at that point it was by far my most liked photo, which is, you know, I was just like, shit, why? This is kind of crazy. But then that very same night, she called, she called me up and was hysterical and furious that I had basically given away the fact that 
it was a one night stand, even though I didn't actually say that in the video. But it was obvious that she, we, me and her weren't in a relationship by the way I was talking. I was like, well, that's because we're not. Why would I lie? But anyway, she was really angry at that. She told me she was moving to LA with the kids when they were born and I wouldn't have anything to do with it because all I wanted to do was, you know, make money off them by doing vlogs around them and stuff. I was like, I haven't said anything about doing vlogs around them, etc., etc. And there we were, a couple of weeks until due date. I, at this point, I, you know, we got all the baby clothes and um, things were ready. So at this point, I hadn't actually gone to her house where she lived, which is in Chelsea, which annoyed me a lot because I didn't even, you know, I didn't know where she lived. I hadn't even been able to help as much as I wanted to. And so it was like she didn't actually want me to. So it's the night before the cesarean and she, she, she asked me that day to go and get a couple of blankets for mother care and wash them or whatever. Uh, which I did, and she was like, can you meet me at the hospital tomorrow? And I was like, yeah, 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 which one? Is it Chelsea and Westminster? Because that's where I had actually met her once. And she just didn't reply. Then the following morning, still no reply. And then I'm like, fuck this shit. I go to Chelsea and Westminster. Well, I go up to the desk, I'm like, hi, is, is there a girl by the name of, you know, her name? having a C-section today, blah, blah, blah. She was like, no, no one's here of that name. But the thing is, even if she was she was there, they wouldn't legally be allowed to tell just anyone that walks in and asks. But they did say the fact that she's not there means that she, they're allowed to say someone's not there and she wasn't there. So I was like, mate, what the fuck is going on? So then I called around some other hospitals no one, no one, you know, has heard of this girl. No, this girl isn't anywhere. So then I call our only mutual friend, who um, is also a photographer, and uh, it's how I actually met her. I'm like, mate, this is the situation. Do you know where she is? Have you heard anything of her from her in the last couple of days? And he was shocked. And then he was like, you know, have you spoke? Do you have her dad's number? And I was like, mate, her dad's dead. And he was like, no, no, he isn't. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean, no, he isn't? He was like, well, she said she was at her dad's last month. I was like, mate, she told me like three or four months ago that the dad's dead. So then obviously we were both pretty confused at this. And he was just like, what the fuck is going on? Then he was like, I think we should wait a couple hours, and if not, we need to call the police. Something weird's going on. Maybe she, he's, she's had an accident or something. I was like, okay, okay. Then uh, my friend gets back from holiday, who's been, who was very, I mean, he's one of my closest friends, and he was very particularly close to me throughout this whole saga. We go to the police station and we tell him what we think's happening, and he, they took it pretty seriously, and uh, give, I give them, the, give them the name the girl, whatever. And he was like, are you sure she lives in Chelsea? I was like, no, not at all. <laughs> I, I mean, I think she does. She's always saying she lives in Chelsea. I've got her address because my mum sent her some kind of card at some point. He was like, okay, let's go to this, let's go to this address then. So there we are, zooming through Chelsea, sirens on. We get to this block of flats. He goes to the concierge. And our man at the concierge says that there's no one here of that name living here. 
So me and my boy in the back of this police car are like, mate, what on earth is going on? So I give up at this point in terms of like, I, did, I didn't really know what to do, what else I could do that day. Pretty tired, emotionally drained. I went back home. So I somehow get to sleep. And then I wake up to a message from her saying, I collapse in East London. I'm in a hospital, blah, 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 some other shit. And I was like, well, what, what the fuck? What about the, the, the babies? She was like, well, she said, she, sorry. She was like, I collapsed in East London. I went into labor. And I was like, what the fuck? And what about the baby? And she was like, they're fine. I was like, where are you? I called her. She picked up. She was like, I don't, I don't want you to see them. I put the phone down. Obviously, I didn't hear anything from her. Her phone's off. Then I get another message from her a few hours later saying, I don't want you to see them in this state. One of them isn't doing too well. So at this point, like, I'm like, this is really immoral, what she's doing. But I also knew that her dad wasn't dead. And thankfully, I remembered the name of her dad because it's a stupid name. It's not a stupid name, it's an absolutely fine name. It's a random name is what I meant to say. Um, and uh, there's actually someone of that name in Harry Potter. So I remembered this name. So anyway, my boy comes over, who's a proper nerd. And uh, we're like, that's it, we're going to find the address of this, this geezer. And uh, we're looking at things for hours. We find the names, it all makes sense. We pay like 10 quid to have access to this electoral register. And after hours of searching, we find the address and it all makes sense. The, the, the mum's name, her name was there. It was all there. We were like, shit, we know where he is. And to me, I was like, this guy is the key. If I, if I could talk to him, I can, you know, we can sort some shit out. So anyway, we decided it best that I don't go up there. That my friend goes up there and he, he's very, so, so helpful. He drove up there. And uh, he gets to the door and um, the, uh, the dad, who was meant to be dead, opens the door and uh, he kind of introduced himself. He was like, hey, my name's Umesh. I'm Hobby's very good friend. I'm, I'm here because I'm really concerned about the girl's name. And uh, Hobby's the father of the children. And the guy's like, what children? Who are you? What are you talking about? How do you know she lives here? And then my friend was like, what do you mean what children? I was with her like two months ago. She's really pregnant. <laughs> and the guy, like, her dad was just really confused and was like, I don't know who you are. If you don't leave here, I'm calling the police. There are no children. And uh, he actually thought that my friend was some kind of stalker. He was, seemed a bit scared of my friend. All the while, my friend's girlfriend is in the car on the phone to me. And she was like, I don't know what's going on. They're talking. Umesh is flapping his arms around. And then he was like, oh. she was like, Umesh has come back. Umesh come back to the car. And he gets in the car and he sounds weird. He's like, I don't know what the fuck's going on. I don't know what the fuck's going on. Let's just drive away quick and I'll tell you. And I was like, Umesh, what the fuck has happened? He was like, there's no children. There's no children. I'm like, what? He was like, the guy said, there's no children, blah, blah. I was like, obviously, we're all pretty mind-blown at this point. And I'm there just racking my brains, like, how can there possibly be no children? I've seen scams 
She's pre- She's got a fucking stomach on her, which has been growing over the last however many months. So anyway, we hold a meeting at my house. I get my other boy over. We're just chatting and we're... But it doesn't really seem real to me at this point. I'm just like, this is some sketchy shit. At this point, I still haven't even heard from her again. And then my friend goes home and I get a call from him one hour later. He's shook. He's like, Hobby, Hobby, I'm a fucking god. I'm a fucking god, bro. Hobby, Hobby. I'm like, mate, what is up? She was like, the scans, the scans, they're fake, they're fake. I found them on someone's flicker. She's just nicked them and changed them and changed the names and everything. It's all fake. There's definitely no kids. And I'm just sitting there in my bed like, oh my goodness gracious me. <laughs> there are actually no kids. And it was a really weird state of shock and relief as well and confusion at how how it could not be true when I had lived so many months of my life thinking that I was going to be a father and all of the, the endless conversations we had about it and the fact that she had, we had been to mother care together to buy clothes and it had been a, it had been a, a whole journey leading up to this point. And then to, to find out that somehow it was all a lie was, it was quite numbing actually. And I guess the story ends there. I told her that I had found everything out. She then says that she had, she had suffered a miscarriage and she couldn't deal with the, the truth. So she kept, she kept up this facade that she was pregnant and she, she just kept it going and she, until she didn't know what to do anymore, which was definitely a lie. It was all just a lie. Her mum was never dead, even though she told me the first time we met that she was dead. She was alive. I feel very sorry for her, despite what she's, what she did. When something happens like that, it, it makes you re- reevaluate certain things about yourself. Why did it happen? I had slept with someone that I didn't even really want to sleep with. And I, my relationship with sex has certainly changed since then. I'm not as promiscuous as I was before in everyone's relationship with sex is nothing to do with anyone else really. But for me personally, I, I stopped, you know, sleeping with so many people and, and thought more about my actions in terms of what are actually the consequences. And if I do something, why am I really doing it? It made me realise that I am actually ready to be a father, have a second chance in, in finding someone that I, I truly want to share a life with and build something with and have a child with. At the same time, I'm in no rush to do it because freedom is a, is a wonderful thing. So yeah, when the time comes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. So whenever that will be, what will be will be, G. And uh, that's the end of my story. <laughs> It's a shame you can't talk to your heart Instead you should have been working on editing who you are Cities on fire Some people watch from the start
That song you just heard, Having My Child, Hobby wrote about what happened to him. The lyrics say it all. Sending me pictures, shame you can't doctor your heart. Instead, you should have been working on editing who you are. You can listen to the rest of it on Spotify. Ultimately, the truth will out. But what's more complicated, I think, is that Hobby's ex maybe believed the lie herself. This episode is all about deception and false advertising, but sometimes the mind can be so powerful we deceive ourselves, and the mind is treacherous against the body. In 2017, Hobby's ex photoshopped herself pregnant, and in 1555, Mary Tudor, the daughter of Henry VIII and the Queen of England, thought herself pregnant. Mary's story is both violent and tragic. She ascended the throne in 1553, married King Philip of Spain, also the Holy Roman Emperor, and after two years of desperately, urgently wanting a baby, age 37, she thought God had delivered her a miracle. Accounts of the time confirm all of Mary's symptoms. The marriage negotiator and French diplomat Simon Renard wrote to the Holy Roman Emperor, Mary's husband, that the lady is well with child, God be thanked, for she has felt the babe and presents all the usual signs on her breasts and elsewhere. Mary had other symptoms too, no periods, weight gain, morning sickness and a swollen belly, and a detail I find so poignant is that Mary had a nursery prepared and a gorgeous royal cradle built, but sadly no baby would ever fill it, and after nine months her abdomen deflated, and no baby arrived. This phantom pregnancy sadly could have been more than psychological. Medical historians speculate that she was suffering from uterine or ovarian cancer, but I think the two are not mutually exclusive. The implication of lactating breasts imply her mind was also strongly at work. In these extreme cases, it's like we catfish ourselves. And why? Mary's case is quite easy to understand. Her pressure to produce an heir was a matter of life and death. And furthermore, it seems she was deeply in love with her husband, who treated her coldly. As David Starkey writes, when King Philip realised Mary was probably barren, he cut his losses and left for Europe, innocently deceiving her with promises of return. Mary was heartbroken at his departure and fell into a deep depression. It sounds like the combination of royal pressure to produce an heir and a desperate unrequited love made her mind do extraordinary things. The mind's power is no less potent nowadays. Even men, without wombs, can suffer pregnancy symptoms in sympathy with their partners. Their bellies can swell to look like baby bumps. And yet these stories so far of self-deception and fake pregnancy point to distinctly female pressures. The female pressure to unite the public and private faces of oneself is something brought up in Shakespeare's Hamlet. Hamlet berates Ophelia with the line, I have heard of your paintings too well enough. God has given you one face and you make yourselves another. When Hamlet uses the word paintings, he means makeup. But the word painting seems amazingly apt given the context of this episode. Makeup, like a curated profile picture, can make us look different to how we actually are in the flesh. There is a danger in having one face and making yourself another. On dating apps, this kind of unintentional catfishing is called 
kitten fishing, kitten being a more minor version of cat. It's when you look hotter in your dating profile pictures than you do in the flesh. This is something you might usually say is done to you, but one of my guests, Paul, says it's something he's been accused of. Here's Paul. Kitten fishing is false advertising. I've been accused of it. What? I've been accused of being so photogenic that when you meet me in person, I'm just not as attractive. I got told that on a first date. They thought I was going to be better looking than I was because of my photos. This was his point, was that he went, straight on, you look like your photos, but then you move to a different angle and you just look like someone completely different. I was like, okay. And then he didn't drop it. He just kept going. He was like, yeah, so like your profile, like when you turn, it's, you just look like a completely different, it doesn't look like your photos. It makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. I started taking worse photos, like purposefully worse photos to try and set a low expectation so that the bar could be raised afterwards. Because, I mean, I even went to a barbecue once where a girl had said, who said they were bringing a dog? And I said, oh, that was me, I didn't bring him in the end. And she went, oh, no, 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 this guy was really hot. And then she went onto her Facebook, onto my Facebook profile, and started flicking through the pictures showing me, going, him. <laughs> I'm going, that's me. And she went, oh, yeah. Because you're really photogenic. So <laughs> that made me massively insecure about only having a photo before things. I would, I would even say to people, like, uh, people go, oh, you're gorgeous. Oh, I'm photogenic. And it became like a default. Oh, I'm not as good looking as my pictures. Because I was so influenced by those things that were said. Kitten fishing is not always intentional. Strangely enough, I met Paul under reverse circumstances. We met on the set of a TV show when he was playing a leper. We had a very nice chat when he was covered head to toe in bubbling latex, and it was only at the end of the day, when the latex was stripped away, that I saw the true, handsome man underneath. But from wigs to latex to makeup, we expect that kind of deception in the world of TV. It's not so amusing when it happens in life. And in some cases, catfishing can go so far, it becomes positively ghoulish. This next story is a little closer to home. It's about my grandparents in the 1940s, and a listener warning, it does contain descriptions of violence, so maybe don't let your kids or kittens listen in. Here's my mum to tell us this story. I suppose the worst case of catfishing is my mother's experience. During the Second World War, she was working as a nurse in a hospital in the Middle East, in Haifa, uh, where she met my father, who was also working in Haifa. And they fell in love. And after three years, my mother very much wanted to get married. She was seven years older than my father. She wanted to settle down and have children. My father, not quite so keen to commit, not quite so ready to settle down. He was having a very good time. And although he was in love with my mother, he couldn't quite get there to ask her to marry him. So this caused them to have a lot of fights. They would row, they would not speak for weeks, and then they would make up. On one of these occasions, there was a party to celebrate the arrival of a newly, highly decorated young lieutenant colonel in the British Army. He was causing quite a stir, because not just because of his valour and his bra bravery, but because of his 
beautiful blue eyes and his lovely blonde hair. He was a stunner and all the women were in a flutter about him. Now, at this party, it was on one of the occasions when my mother and father were not speaking to each other. So they arrived separately. My mother, not to miss an opportunity, decided that she would do her very best to make my father as jealous as possible. So indeed, she proceeded to flirt outrageously with the gorgeous Lieutenant Colonel, who was, as, as well as being brave, handsome, had a soft, soft speaking voice that my mother said you had to lean in to catch his very words. He found her obviously enchanting. They spent the evening together dancing and flirting. And eventually he uh, offered to take her home uh, to his hotel. Uh, She went with him, but she declined going up to his hotel room uh, because she said that she had to return to the nurse's residence because she was on duty first thing in the morning. He said he'd love to take her out for dinner again that week, which was she free on Tuesday. She said she was. It was her day off. She would love to have dinner with him in his hotel. The next day at the nurse's residence, an enormous bouquet of red roses arrived, addressed to my mother from my father, with a card saying, Mia culpa, I'm sorry, I love you. Please will you have dinner with me on Tuesday night? This, of course, clashed with the lieutenant colonels. But my mother, not being stupid, realised that it was really my father she, she she was in love with and wanted. So she went to the hotel uh, where this lieutenant colonel was staying. He was in the bar downstairs when she met him and he she said she couldn't come and have dinner with him and he said uh, he was very disappointed. He said, wouldn't she do another night? She said, no, she better not. And they parted, good terms, nothing was lost. And indeed, that Tuesday night, my father took my mother out for a beautiful dinner and produced the much-wanted, much-admired, much-flaunted, beautiful, solitaire, diamond engagement ring. Obviously, it's wartime. People have moved around a lot. Um, No more news has heard of the lieutenant colonel. And he's probably on manoeuvres in the desert. Battle of Alamein is coming up. Who knows? But in fact, he wasn't. He was shortly after seeing my mother, he was shortly after arrested for a series of bounced checks. Fraud. He, we discover, had a very serious gambling habit. And when the military police investigated him further to find out just how he had been managing to afford um, these very, very expensive gambling debts, he, they found he'd been living on two paychecks, one his own in the army and the second was a dead lieutenant colonels. So this was a much more serious crime for which he was going to be court-martialed, in which case he was escorted onto a, a military ship and with an escort and was going to be taken back to the UK to be tried. Uh, but somehow, being wily or charming, just lucky, he managed to evade his guard and when they docked at Nairobi on the way back, he is absconded and he got away, not to be heard or seen of again. Uh, The war was over. 1946, my mother and father are happily married, living in Haifa. And one Sunday morning at breakfast, my mother has the Sunday newspapers, which have been sent out from the UK, so probably about a month old, and is horrified to see on the front cover of of the newspapers blow up photograph of the beautiful 
charming, dashing Lieutenant Colonel, stripped of all his decorations and honours, and now just plain private Neville Heath. He had been taken to court, the old Bailey, accused of the murder of two women, one in a hotel in Bayswater and one in a hotel in Bournemouth. They had been brutally mutilated and sexually abused. One of the women had had her nipples bitten off, terribly whipped and lacerated. And this blue-eyed angel had been, was charged and in fact was uh, sentenced to hang. He was the murderer. Neville Heath became this cause celebre. And my mother was, I couldn't believe it. This was her escape. And this was her catfisher. She had assumed him to be what he said he was. And he was absolutely nothing to do with this gorgeous um, image that he had of himself. Years later, when you were born, I took you to Madame Tussauds, to the Chamber of Horrors, where there, in pride of place at the time, was no other than Neville Heath, and a rather good likeness of him, as far as I could tell from the photographs. And you were fascinated by this waxwork of this murderer, and I said it was probably because of him that you and I were standing looking at him. And you asked me why, and I said, because this man was really the reason that my mother and father had made an agreement and she had accepted his proposal of marriage. And this was caused by making this man jealous. Neville Heath was hung by Pierpoint in London, October 1946, and apparently smooth even during his last breaths. When offered a customary glass of whiskey to steady his nerves by the hangman, he said... While you're about it, sir, you might make that a double. Catfishing and impersonation being used by murderers with sexual motive, such as Neville Heath, to lure victims, continues today. In 2016, the so-called grinder killer, Stephen Port, was given a life sentence for the murders of four young men and multiple rapes. On his dating profiles, he made false claims about his background, pretending to have graduated from Oxford, and even, very much like Heath, pretended he'd served in the Royal Navy. There's something especially disturbing about a baby-faced killer. That's why we like our monsters, like Freddy Krueger or Michael Myers, to look like monsters. This idea that one's personality is reflected in one's face and appearance is called physiognomy. But clearly the face can be a brilliant mask, which conceals rather than reflects. Otherwise, what woman would have gone with Neville Heath or Ted Bundy? Or what man would have swiped right on the grinder killer? or gone home with Dennis Nielsen. The same is true of regular people. When it comes to crimes of the heart, how can we ever know what really lies beneath? The face or a dating profile, the 2D canvas, whether in paint or pixels, can easily establish a false precedent. It's fair to say that curated dating profiles are an attempt at self-improvement, but sometimes the gap between truth and reality can be a nasty leap. I think that Oscar Wilde's book, The Picture of Dorian Gray, works well as an early metaphor for what we now call Instagram versus reality. As the beautiful lie spins itself out in public, behind the curtain lurks an uglier, festering truth. Considering truth and treachery in binary terms, of course, is reductive, because everything is on a grey spectrum. Outright honesty on a dating profile would itself be a red flag, and sometimes... We can't be honest about ourselves because we can't see ourselves. 
and I mean literally. You can never actually see all of yourself in 3D. So maybe subtext and lack of self-awareness are the most truthful methods of communication of all. So with these stories of caution and treachery and deception, I say, go forth, swipe left and right, stay safe, and remember that a profile is just a side, even your own. And in light of hobby story, I want to add one more thing. Sponsored by Jurex. And the next episode of The Cupid Couch is Sexuality and Labels. It's a look into the rainbow spectrum of sexuality and gender, from tales of dysphoria to a man who came out of the closet by accident to the love life of penguins. That's up next. My name is Genevieve Gaunt, and you've been listening to The Cupid Couch.